Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, team, to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. And this week, we're delighted to bring you another in our Being a Medveg series, this time welcoming back a previous guest, consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Ajay Verma, who gives us the lowdown on calling gastro out of hours. Now, this was a fantastic learning experience for me as a non-gastroenterologist and made me so much more confident in approaching unwell gastro patients out of hours. And finally, it's been a busy couple of weeks over at our Buy Me A Coffee page, which you can find a link to in the show notes if you want to directly support the show. A huge thank you to Jan, Mahak, Elias, Lieben, RJ, Mark B, and a special shout out to our largest ever donation, which came from Alex F. It's support like this that keeps the podcast being produced to help more and more people succeed in the MRCP Paces. But without further ado, let's get into Calling Gastro with Dr. Ajay Verma. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm Dr. Sam Williams, and one of the things I thought would be helpful for those listeners who are at a junior doctor level and regularly working on call or out of hours on the medical take is calling specialties out of hours, and particularly at night. One of my biggest fears is calling gastroenterology overnight for something like an acute GI bleed. Due to the pandemic, during my core medical training, I didn't have a gastro rotation and instead spent eight months on intensive care. So to help me fill this gap in my medical practice, we are delighted to be welcoming back Dr. Ajay Verma, consultant gastroenterologist at Kettering General Hospital. So Ajay, welcome back to the show. Oh, hi, Sam. How are you doing? Yeah, all well. Thank you. I really appreciate you giving up your time again. And this time you're going to be talking to us about calling gastroenterology out of hours and like I said this is something which thankfully today I've never had to do but I really think junior doctors and prospective medical regs 
find it difficult to determine when they should and when they shouldn't and maybe what sort of information a gastroenterologist on call wants to know if you're going to wake them up at two or three o'clock in the morning. So this is a skill that hopefully you're going to help us uh, determine the sorts of things which you like to know if we're going to wake you from the bleary mists of sleep. So I think the first thing to say would be Ajo, while I mentioned in, at the start, an upper GI bleed or an acute GI bleed is one of the reasons that we would call you in the middle of the night. Can you think of any other reason why you might have to call a, a gastroenterologist overnight, unless they're the consultant physician on call? Um, in reality, probably not too many other reasons. To be really precise here, the gastroenterologist, you should be calling them for acute upper GI bleeds. Um, lower GI bleeds, the, the, the kind of role of endoscopy is, is really murky and, you know, 95% of lower GI bleeds self-resolve and, and, you know, scoping a patient with a lower GI bleed is fraught with difficulties because you basically, all you see is um, torrential bleeding coming from above, so you can't actually do anything. So it's a bit like putting a scope in a ketchup bottle, you know, you, you're not going to see much. So yeah, so mainly, so 99% of the calls I would expect are around acute upper GI bleeding. I suppose the exceptions would be is if there's a patient on a gastroenterology ward, for instance, who, you know, they're a complex case, who've been in the care for a long time, and there, there's a kind of significant deterioration or something like that. And, and perhaps you haven't you, Sam, worked on ICU, it might be that in that situation, the ITU consultant wants some clarity around an issue, then that may be another reason too. But most of those discussions usually can wait. Uh, so the main thing is acute upper GI bleeding. And so one question which I've always wanted to ask is, if we pick up the phone to ring the gastro consultant on call or the on-call endoscopist overnight, what are the sorts of things which you want to hear from us? What are the things which you think are most important for us to let you know about? So the first thing is some... Now, I use this word carefully because I don't want it to come across as pompous or difficult, but it's just a bit of some of the etiquette of things. And, and, And when I explain it, it'll make a bit more sense. So... I think if you're going to call the gastroenterologist on call, and, and this is nothing about fear or whatever, you, you basically want to get a story over concisely and get a decision on what happened. So it, it's like the usual things, being prepared. So having your information in front of you, logged onto the systems you want to look at. Um, and I would usually say it should be probably the registrar who calls. And, and that's not a, a slight on anyone else. It's just you're having a high-level discussion about the care of a patient who's in desperate need of, of treatment. You, you wouldn't be calling unless there was a, a real concern there. So you basically want the kind of the most experienced person involved in that care to call. So a registrar with all the stuff ready, there's nothing more frustrating. You know, and you know this as well as the reg. You know, someone calls you and refers to you and you go, okay, so what are the bloods? And they'll go, oh, yeah, just give me a minute. I'm just going to log on. Um, I don't have the obs with me. Just give me a second. So it, that's usual thing. There's nothing, anything extra. And I would, I've got to say, most gastroenterologists are very down to earth. We have to be uh, with the nature of the conditions we manage with. So I'm hoping you don't get too much grief from calling the, the gastroenterologist on call at night. So it's just being prepared, having the information ready. And typically, I would suggest it's the registrar that does it. I think that's good practice. Yeah. And so let's say you, you know you introduce yourself as the as the reg or maybe the acting registrar on call and you establish that we need we need to have a discussion about es- maybe an escalation of care or asking you to come in 
what are the key facts and figures about the case in question, which is going to make the yes. biggest, which is going to make the yeah. biggest difference to your decision as to whether or not you need to come in and and do an emergency endoscopy? So I think what's helpful here, um, Sam, is to give you a little bit of context on some of the things we consider before we decide to come in and scope. Okay, so because um, there, there is this kind of running joke, and and you know. Which, which is absolutely right. You know, uh, you ask a gastroenterologist to scope, and they're either too sick to be scoped, or if they're they're kind of stable enough, they can be scoped in the morning. And people go, "Well, the answer's always no, then, isn't it?" And the answer isn't always no. But the, the rationale behind that is, I I actually live not too far from the hospital, so for me, if I need to come in, it's not no big hardship in terms of distance or travel or anything like that. But for me to scope someone, uh, you know, it's not a single person effort. You're generally talking about uh, two endoscopy nurses coming in as well, opening up a unit, uh, the equipment involved. So the scopes aren't just ready. They have to be prepared, make sure they're ready, all the equipment attached. You know, And the venue of where that's done, is that done in the endoscopy department? Is that done in theatre, which often is overnight? Is it done in the intensive care unit? We, we often take all the equipment to the intensive care unit. Usually for the out-of-hours bleeds, you know, they're, they're really sick. So you're talking about anaesthetic support whether the patient's going to be tubed. And then you've got other concepts to look at in terms of, is theatre busy? You know, if, if someone needs a bleed doing, and then you call theatre and they're doing an emergency middle-of-the-night laparotomy, you know, there's only one emergency theatre usually in most hospitals staffed. So those are the kind of things we have to balance out. And then there's also things about timings. So, for instance, um, even though we're on call overnight, being called at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning about a bleed, unless it's absolutely, you know, there's an extremist here, I would suggest that can wait. And the reason why is by the time we come in and get all the equipment ready and get the patient into theatre and all the treatments being given, it'll be 8 o'clock in the morning. And our endoscopy unit opens at 8 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, it's often that type of thing can wait. So the kind of critical times to think about is, so if it's in the evening up to kind of 1, 2 a.m., then that's where we, we need to know. As it gets more later in the day, by the time you're given your uh, initial resuscitation and treatment, it, it, it's kind of going to be the morning anyway. So that's one thing to think of. The other thing as well is a bit like surgery and, and CPOD uh, requirements. You know, we really don't want to be scoping in the middle of the night unless it's absolutely critical just because of human nature. You know, doing things with tired staff in the middle of the night increases the risk for the patient. So just like in surgery, they don't want to do an operation unless it's life-saving. It's the same with us. So we will generally, we are actively trying to deflect as many as we can into the daytime, just because that's where all the strength is, all your surgical support is, all your radiological support is, all your intensivist support is, you know, more stuff around. So that's the other thing to think about. So those are some of the things that occur in our head. You've got to remember that most customers who do the overnight uh, have got a full day of things tomorrow as well. Now, People will quite cynically say to you, oh, yes, you know, that doesn't matter. You get paid to be on call overnight. Stop your whinging and come in and do that. But actually, I always counter back. I say, yeah, but, you know, you work in a hospital. You know that if I'm on call for MAU and I'm doing GI bleeds as well, then if I come in and I'm in all night, I'm not going to do the MAU round in the morning. And, and that has an impact on trust, you know, the kind of flow and admissions and the sick patients then. So there's a lot of things we have to balance out. So that's the, the kind of ethos of what we're trying to do, really. The, the thing that will make us come in definitely are kind of liver bleeds, um, liver associated GI bleeding. 
So you're talking about virus seal bleeds, uh, and those are the ones that are high risk and, and usually need intervention. So those are the ones we will. For kind of peptic ulcer bleeding, we don't typically do them overnight because actually the, the kind of interventions around them are slightly different, and I can explain a bit more about that. The other thing to remember as well, and thankfully most physicians get it, but non-physicians don't get it, and, and that's not me criticizing them, is this isn't like a trauma. This isn't someone's chopped their leg off, there's blood squirting from an artery, and if you don't go to theatre and stop that bleeding, that patient's going to die. When we are scoping, we're not trying to stop a bleed. I know that sounds an odd thing, but actually we don't always go in. We don't often go in and there's an active squirting vessel. And you've got to remember, these are enclosed spaces. You know, It's not a big open space outside the body. It's an enclosed organ inside the body. So if there's active, active bleeding and blood accumulating, you can't see anything. So you've got to remember that when someone has a bleed, typically what happens is they stop bleeding. And then what we're trying to do with our treatments, including endoscopic intervention, is to reduce the risk of re-bleeding. And in GI bleed, if the first bleed doesn't kill you, the re-bleed has got a very high mortality. So when you're asking us about a bleed, often the understanding is that, oh, yeah, can you come in and stop this bleeding? And you go, the bleeding's probably stopped. Unless their blood pressure's caning it down, the bleeding's probably stopped. And the question is, what's the balance of risk and benefits of us adding endoscopic treatment to medical treatment in that gap against the risk of re-bleeding? And, and that's why for variceal bleeds, the risk of re-bleeding is very high. So that's why we'll often go in and, and do some banding or give some treatment. For peptic ulcer bleeding, the re-bleed risk is actually lower than for liver bleeding. And, and some of the interventions we can, we can do, medical management as opposed to endoscopic uh, intervention, um, is often easier. So that's what's in my head immediately as a baseline. That's my baseline encyclopedic thought process that runs through my head when someone calls overnight. And trying to understand that will actually help then you as the reg on call to understand what will make us come in and what won't. So what will make me come in, obviously, is the variceal bleed. Now, what's really important is the resuscitation. It's the you know, for all medical emergencies, it is the resuscitation that is the, the key thing. You know, if someone's got a huge PE, you know, people will go, well, we need a thrombolyzer, embolizer, or, or all the bits and pieces. But you're actually not going to do it if the patient's, you know, just about to kind of arrest on you, you know, doesn't have a blood pressure. And it's exactly the same with, with GI bleeding. It, it's not an intervention to stop bleeding and, and, and kind of rescue something. We're not kind of superheroes in that way. It is that re-bleed aspect. And if a patient is uh, in extremist due to hypotension or due to severe anemia or due, due to coagulopathy, you know, that needs to be corrected. Our, our never event in endoscopy is a patient dying on the table. If a patient dies on an endoscopy table, either during the procedure, pre-procedure, post-procedure in that department, that is a failure of assessment and management. I've been scoping for years, Sam, and I think I've not had a patient die on me on the table. And, and you know, in our department, we scope thousands of patients a year. We get less than, than one or two per year that die associated with the endoscopy department. So it is it is worth remembering that. And for the variceal bleed, the resuscitation is more critical initially. So most variceal bleeding is driven by sepsis. So that's why we ask for antibiotics. Uh, the terlipressin reduces the splanchnic pressure, so that reduces the kind of burden of, of, of the pressure in the, in the kind of varices to, to reduce the risk of bleeding. Uh, and then it's that endoscopic intervention of banding that, that will kind of give the patient the best 
the best chance. And that's for esophageal viruses. Gastric viruses is very difficult. The only thing we can do for those is really inject either thrombin or glue into the gastric virus. And it's not something you can really do overnight. And you need an empty stomach to do that. You can't really, you know, blood squirting from gastric virus. It's not amenable to treatment in the, that acute setting. For peptic ulcers, again, it's challenging. It has to stop bleeding. And then there's got to be a lesion that's treatable. So we can use adrenaline, we can use heat, we can use clips. So if there's visible vessels and stuff like that. But actually bleeding in the duodenum is really difficult to access. The duodenum is a very odd shape. And actually getting endoscopic access to that area is actually really challenging. So we've, we've looked at it in our own data Peptic ulcers, we very rarely come in overnight, very rarely. But for variceal bleed, you know, if someone's had a massive variceal bleed, they've been resuscitated and they're at risk, we will come in and do those. Perfect. So much information to take in there for me. And so just if I can ask you to expand on one thing in particular. So let's say, you know, you, you start off the conversation and, and we're, we're obviously going to try and present a case to you. Yes. Um, and, and let's say, I mean... Is it the case that if we say, you know, this person's got known chronic liver disease, they've, uh, you know, they're, they're an alcoholic or, you know, they're alcohol dependent, you know, they're extremely high risk. Is, is that enough for you to want to come in? Or how much do you rely on sort of the facts and figures? Do you want us to say, you know, the hemoglobin's five, the urea's 28 or something like that? I mean, it's like any condition, Sammy. We're, we're like police detectives, aren't we? How much evidence will, will you need to cross the threshold? So... For instance, with, with the, if, if you say someone's come in with hematemesis, okay, the question is for me, okay, is this patient, do they have liver disease? Yes or no? Because that's the, the key thing. So you're right. Have they got a history of chronic liver disease? Well, that's pretty convincing. Do they have a history of alcohol abuse? If not the history of liver disease, have they had scopes before that shown viruses? That, you know, those those are pretty, pretty useful things. Then you've got your clinical assessment, you know, have they got stigmata of chronic liver disease? Have you got imaging that suggests liver disease? Have you got other clinical features such as ascites or uh, spider nevi and, and, and jaundice that may suggest liver disease? And then you've got your blood metrics, haven't you? You know, do they have low platelets? Have they got a coagulopathy? Is their liver function disordered, liver enzyme test disordered? So it's a buildup of case, really. Um, you know, so we do sometimes have first presentations where they don't have a history of liver disease, but it is, you know, your someone will go, well, they're not known to have liver disease, but the family say he's a bit of a drinker. The INR is 1.6, the platelets are 40, you know, and then and you're building up a picture to go, mm, okay. And, you know, you go, there looks like there's some spider neva, then that for me would be enough. So it's, but there's no kind of absolute, it's a case by case discussion. And the other thing as well is all, also with all interventions, and I'm sure it's the same for you as a cardiologist, we need to know how, what the patient's state is as well. You know, if, if a patient's uh, had a big liver bleed, um, liver associated bleed, and, and they're kind of moribund due to diffuse metastatic cancer, you know, and they've come in, then it's about doing the right thing for the patient. And, and in the end, you know, we're not doing a patient a favor by putting them through a procedure that they're likely to die on the table. That's not a really dignified way to go. Um, so it, it's kind of that global assessment, presentation of evidence and a case by case discussion. And there isn't like a I, I try and keep away from this. And, and actually, when I if you call me, Sam, and I say no, I, I, I often try and give a rationale back to that person who's referring so that to help their understanding. I'm not one to go no and put the phone down and want to go look these are the reasons why i don't think so and here's what i'd suggest you do in the interim because just the kind of me giving you the non-endoscopic the management is just as important and then we take things from there so that's the kind of you know you said the evidence that's what we would suggest so you need all everything your clinical assessment your blood results uh, and a bit of history 
there is this reflex that, or uh, you know, someone comes to hematemesis, they go, we must call the gastroenterologist. And that's absolutely fine. But if you don't have any blood back and you don't have any history, then it's very difficult for us to tell you what to do or whether we're going to come in. Because in the end, no gastroenterologist is going to come in without knowing the clotting, without knowing what the hemoglobin is. You know, and we often get this. I've had calls before and they'll go, yeah, patients come in ED with hematemesis. Okay, so what, what are their bloods? Oh, they're not back yet. Okay. Uh, they've got a past medical history of blood disease. Oh, I don't know. Have you actually seen them? No, no, no. I just got a referral, but I haven't seen them yet. And, and that happens and you think, hmm. So let me, I often turn it around and say, look, if you're a patient with liver disease and the, the doctor seeing you hasn't even seen you and is trying to put you through a very major procedure without fully assessing you, how would you feel about that you know, if it was relative? And, that, and that's the point, really. It's more important we get the right decision as opposed to the speed of decision. As an endoscopist, I have to be within an hour of the hospital. So it tells you the ethos around GI bleeding. It's not that intervention like in labor ward where someone's you know, got shoulder dystocia for their newborn baby and an obstetrician has to be there immediately to help deliver that baby. It's not like that. It actually, from the call to scope, might take two, three, four hours. <laughs> Again, this is this is so much great info for everyone who's going to be uh, prospectively, you know, making these sorts of calls. And and one thing you mentioned as well is so rather than someone ringing you saying, "Oh, you know, I haven't seen the patient," what's what steps would you hope that the, yes. the the referring doctor would have taken already before they then pick up the phone? You know, what's the 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 blue sky thinking? What's the sort of amazing pre pre telephone call management that you would want to be implemented before they then make the phone call? So you'll be surprised this, Sam, or you may not be. It's nothing too dramatic. It is simple things. Have you got good venous access? Have you managed as you would for, you know, as a resuscitation? You know, are all the investigations back that are relevant? You know, their bloods. Are you correcting coagulopathy? Are you correcting anemia? Are you correcting kind of huge renal dysfunction and hypotension? For liver disease specifically, you're talking about, um, have you given terlipressin and antibiotics? Because th- th- that will be given whatever needs to be done. You know, even if we're going to ban, we will not ban unless they have their antibiotics and terlipressin. So you can give that. If you're convinced they have liver disease, give it. And even if you end up being wrong, as long, you know, it's like anything in medicine. If at the judgment at the time you're convinced that's the right thing to do, I, I would always back any decision in that way because at the pointy end, you have to make that decision. So that's absolutely fine. So um, those are the things. The, I have a favorite question I ask at interview, Sam, and I, I'll give it to you. And uh, this is me reversing things, okay? Oh God. So <laughs> one of the famous favorite questions of a gastroenterologist for interviews is we talk about uh, a bleed in recess. And I will say, I'll give a scenario. I'll say, okay, you've been asked to see a patient in rhesus with hematemesis. Okay. As you say hi to him, that person vomits 200 mils of blood. Okay. You then get a cannula. As you put cannula in, that person vomits another 200 mils of blood. And then as you pick up the notes, that person vomits again, another 200 mils of blood. What are you going to do? That continues. You can imagine that question continues. You know, they'll go, yeah, I'll get a cannula, I'll give terlipressin, I'll give this. And I'll go, as you do that, the person vomits another 200 mils of blood. Mm-hmm. And then they'll go, yeah, and I'll call, you know, I'll get the gastroenterologist involved. and say, as you pick up the phone, before you even dial, that person vomits another 200 mils of blood. And and w- what do you think I'm trying to allude to in that question? 
Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, as a as a non gastroenterologist, as a general medical reg, I would just say you just have to continually reassess the patient and just continue with a with an A to E assessment. You know, if something yeah. if something's changed, you just need to you know re-see the patient. Has anything changed in particular? Another set of observations, maybe maybe a venous blood gas or anything that's going to signify that the patient's become more unwell. Thankfully, hopefully these cases are pretty unusual, but you do get the odd case where the person just keeps vomiting up blood. And I think the point we're trying to make is that they're not going to protect their airway. So what happens is the more they vomit blood, the more they become obtunded, the more sicker they become. Eventually they'll lose consciousness or drop their GCS. Then they'll Mm. aspirate 100 mils of blood and end up dying straight away. And for big, big, big viruseal bleeds, um, uh, you know, by the time we go in, sometimes the stomach is three quarters full of blood and clot. And then you put a scope in, you're splinting open all their airway. You've lost all their protection. So if they vomit, or even as you put air into the stomach with the scope, blood shoots up, it goes straight into their lungs and they aspirate. Mm. So, you know, I talked about earlier about doing some cases in ITU or theatre. Basically, most viral bleeds done out of hours overnight need to, need to be intubated because of the amount of blood. So that's what we try and get at, really, that if you're in that patient and they just keep vomiting blood, you need to call ITU, because in the end, you can manage the blood loss with products and reversal and whatever, but what you cannot protect, Sam, with medication, and I can't protect with the scope, is that person's airway. So that's the kind of thing we push our gastroregis for, to say, look, actually, this person's going to end up spewing blood everywhere and aspirate on it. And, it's like, and actually, if I asked you about someone recurrently vomiting, you'd probably say, yeah, at one stage, we've got to think, God, are they going to aspirate? It's exactly the same. It's just because they're vomiting blood instead of uh, food. It's exactly the same risks. So that if you ever see that case, you know, that they just keep vomiting, even while you're doing stuff before you can get organized and do anything like that, you know, it is about protecting their airway uh, and getting ITU involved. And actually, especially IIT, our IIT, they'll just tube them. They'll go, yeah, you can't have this patient kind of aspirating to death. Let's tube them. And even if the then the decision is to palliate the patient because you find out they've got metastatic cancer or they've got huge other comorbidities, then they can always be extubated. Fantastic. That's so, uh, that's, that's really helpful. And lots of, uh, at one point, I thought we would end up talking about intensive care and sort of the right time to to ring them. And yeah, in my experience so far, both in my time working in intensive care and, and so far in my time as a general medical reg, they've been you know huge huge help to me, especially as early. especially as a yeah, yeah. especially as call a them early. Reg, yeah. You can't win in these things. It's like every specialty, isn't it? Call them early, take a bit of grief, but in the end, you, what you if you call them late it's very difficult then for that team and also difficult for you and difficult for the patient call people early and if they want to de-escalate and say you shouldn't have called us that's fine you take it on the chin and go okay well i just thought i'd you know inform because i was worried about the patient and in the end no one should be giving you a hard time for that thought process and it's a bit like uh when i did ed years ago when the kind of the red phone goes off you know a call from the ambulance crew coming in they'd go to yeah we've got a big like an accident or a trauma coming in or, or a, you know, something coming in, you get everyone ready, don't you? Everyone's ready. You've got all your team lined up. You might, might be a trauma call or all the teams put in one place. And then if you come in and things aren't needed, you deescalate, don't you? You send people, it's like arrest. You go to arrest and it turns out it's not an arrest or you don't need that many people. Or you start sending people away. It's never the other way where one person turns up and goes, actually, I need more people and starts calling more people. It's usually everyone turns up and then you step away. It's exactly the same with this. Call people, get get the advice in. Same with us. You know, If you've got a virus bleed and that, that case I mentioned where they're just spewing blood, 
you, I would call us as well, and I would be saying the same thing. RIT you there, because get this patient tubed and stabilised. Because in the end, we, we you got to remember, when we scope, unless the tube, we're, we're not going to give them huge amounts of uh, anaesthetic. We don't give anaesthetic, we give gentle sedation. So if you get an anaesthetic to someone who's vomiting blood, they're going to lose their airway and they're going to aspirate and die. And an endoscopy department is not like a rhesus department. We don't have you know, monitors, we don't have all the equipment they have in ED rhesus. So um, the very, very sickest will be often done in ITU or in theatres, depending on your hospital setup, needs anaesthetic support, needs airway protecting. You know, if you're vomiting a litre of blood, and that is a huge amount of blood to come out of the stomach, and it's very, very uh, risky for that patient who, you know, again, we're talk- that is typically liver disease, typically, typically, because the blood's come from the esophagus, pooling in the stomach and then vomiting. So for esophageal varices, you know, these patients may be en- encephalopathic, and obtunded already. So that that's the kind of high risk group we worry about. The other thing to mention, so two of the things Sam I'll mention that are useful tools. Okay. So as a rule of thumb, peptical disease, it's unusual to have hematemesis with that. It's a, a you know frank hematemesis or lots of hematemesis. That's usually more melina and, and hypotension with those bleeds because the bleeding is usually in the duodenum or distal stomach and going through the pylorus. Uh, esophageal virus is much more to have hematemesis. No rule is absolute. I've seen duodenal bleeds with with hematemesis as well, but that's a rough guide. And the other things we did a little bit of research and a really useful tool to look at is a serum urea. It is a, one of the things that gastroenterologists will look at more often than not, um, you know, because that is a true indication for peptidols, not, not for liver disease, but liver disease, you know, it's the history and, and all the stuff we mentioned, but for, for stomach and, and duodenal bleeds, the serum urea is a really good guide because that will go up with those bleeds. And, and, you know, so if someone's got, we get these stories sometimes, you know, this person's sick, hypertensive, they've got sepsis. The nurse mentions that they vomited some coffee grounds and I look at the bloods and I go, mm, the serum's urea is normal. So they're not obviously not digesting blood. So it's less likely. And the term coffee ground, I've tried to ban it from the vernacular. Um, <laughs> because anything darker than beige um, is now described as coffee grounds. And it, it's just people's inexperience. In the end, coffee ground vomiting is pretty unusual. And it's more due to chronic bleeding. Um, so as soon as someone mentions coffee grounds, I'll go, yeah, I'm not worried about that. Is the frank hematemesis is there blood? If there's blood and clot, yes. Uh, coffee grounds, no. Brilliant. And and before we get on to the last question, I'm just going to add, add this one in, which I think in my foundation years, a, a student nurse incurred the wrath of, a, of an upper GI surgeon after a patient vomited, and then she tried to use a urine dip to demonstrate that it had blood in it. Is that something you would advise for uh, for us to tell you about? That's a really interesting thing. Um, I can see the rationale of it, but I would I would go back to the argument that if it if the vomitus in front of you doesn't obviously have blood in it, and you dip it, and there's one plus of blood, you know, <laughs> that that's not hematemesis, is it? So it's actually going back to basics. Is it hematemesis? Yes or no? That's a visual thing. That's not a urine dipstick thing or a you know a, a kind of analysis thing. It's literally looking at it going, is this fresh blood or blood with clots? And that's the only thing that is hematemesis. Nothing else is. You know, so so uh, you can see the rationale, but that's why you get the wrath of, of the endoscopist. You know, if you phone me up and go, yeah, somebody's vomited up their dinner and we dipped it and there's one plus of blood. I'd be like, you need to go and see someone. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
why would you do that? You know, so it, that that's kind of the rationale, really. That that's why I try and educate when I call, and and tr- why I like doing things like this. You know, trying to understand the way we think that we actively are not trying to scope people. It's not because we don't want to. It's just not a pleasant procedure to have. It's not. It's an invasive, dangerous procedure. So you know, inpatient GI bleed procedures are really high risk. You know, so you know the, the mortality from upper GI bleeding um, has not changed in in 30, 40 years, and that's because usually they're older patients with peptic ulcers anyway, older patients who do really badly. So we we don't want to scope them. You're right, damn right. People go, you don't want to scope them. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we don't want to scope them unless we absolutely have to. It's a bit like cardiologists. You know, you do not want to do a, a cath at three o'clock in the morning to put a stent in someone unless you really have to. You're not going to go. Well, we'll just do it anyway. You're going to try and shift that into the the right setting of doing it with the right support. The the kind of work you're doing out of hours are the ones where you're convinced this is going to be a benefit and is the right thing to do for the patient. Exactly the same for endoscopy. We only want to do it if it's absolutely the right thing for the patient. It's not a punt. No invasive procedure should be a punt. You know, if you're going to let's do it for a punt. I think that is more a reflection of your state of mind than what's the right thing for the patient. Coming on to our last question, we've, we've talked about a few of the things which you really don't want to hear when you, when you pick up the phone in the middle of the night. Yeah, You said some of those things were you know, not being prepared or not having the information in front of you. Is there anything else which you would say to the people on the end of the phone who might be thinking about picking up and ringing? Yeah, ringing? yeah. so patients just come in, no one's seen them, no one's assessed them no bloods back, no history taken, no one's looked at the patient, you know, no one's done anything for the patient, you know, the unresuscitated, untreated, nothing patient, you know, don't phone the on-call gastroenterologist saying, yeah, there was a bit of coffee ground, the nurse's report is a bit of coffee ground. You know, if you're going to say Melina, you know, you, you're going to, you know, it's, it's not, we want you to stick a finger up someone's bum for the sake of it. We want you to tell me you've seen Melina. Okay. Because, Asking a patient to see Melina, they don't know what Melina is. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you'll get nurses report, HCA reports of Melina. You know, Sam, as well. The first time you see and hear and smell Melina, you'll never forget it. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're asking people who've never seen, smelled or heard Melina, they ain't going to know what it is. They ain't going to know. And, and so that, that's the reason why. So, you know, no coffee grounds, no someone's told us this, someone's told that. The, want the person to tell me what they've seen. Let the person who's doing the, the referral take responsibility for that case because, and that, that's for the patient. That's not for me. I, I, I'm in bed. I don't care, you know, about my bed. You know, in the end, the bed's still there and I'll, I will, you know, it's about the right thing for the patient. In the end, if you, if your relative came with a severe GI bleed, you want the registrar on call to assess them, review them, come up with their convincing diagnosis then call the gastroenterologist sam if you call me and you went you know i've seen this patient you know this they've got liver disease based on these factors you know uh, looking at their blood results and the history of alcohol abuse and they've had hematemesis i've seen one i've seen their clothes stain with it we've seen one episode here we're worried about this patient i've given them telepressin and i've given them antibiotics i i I, it's not much i would ask i go okay and you go the platelets of this and and, uh, the coagulation is this and we've done this then I'd go, yeah, I'll see you in a bit. Absolutely, I'm on my way. One last thing, Sam, mm-hmm. uh, coagulopathy. If it's due to warfarin, it needs to be reversed, not with vitamin K, or it needs to be given the uh, prothrombin complex, you know, octoplex, mm-hmm. and beriplex, whichever your trust has, because vitamin K doesn't really do much. 
Vitamin K only works about 30% of people anyway. So, you know, if, if someone comes in with a on warfarin and their INR is eight and they've come in with a, a you know, any bleed, you know, you have to reverse that. You can't just leave it, hope for it, whatever. And that needs a prothrombin complex called the hematologist. Number of people who kind of fudge it and go, yeah, I've given 10 milligrams of vitamin K and the INR is now 6.6. And, and it's important to remember, I think people forget that, INR is a, a logarithmic scale, okay? So an INR of 1 is normal. An INR, INR of 2 is not double, it's 10 times what INR of 1 is. An INR of 3 is 100 times what an INR of 1 is. An INR of 4 is 1,000 a, a times what an INR of 1 is. So it's all logarithmic. So that's why a lot of hospitals will just say INR greater than 6 or INR greater than 8, because it doesn't matter if the INR is 12.8 or 124.8, it's trouble. Fantastic. Ajay, thank you so much for giving us a bit more of your time to talk about how we can best prepare ourselves to call a gastro consultant overnight. We really appreciate your time. And thanks again for joining us on the show. No worries. Take care, Sam. Cheers, Ajay. And for all the listeners, don't forget, we really love bringing you these episodes. And if you love the show, please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Do get in touch if you want a topic covered on the show. On Twitter, it's at prepacespodcast or email, it's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. And if you really want to go above and beyond, you can make a pay what you can donation on our Buy Me A Coffee page. It's buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. So thank you so much, guys. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast. <laughs>